Well, it was the night before Easter morning in Nigeria, 2012. A 13-year-old girl by the name of Comfort Jessie was sitting in her home along with her eight other siblings, her father and her mother. This family loved and believed in Christ and his gospel, which made them a target for this region of Nigeria. And it was about 11 p.m. that in the distance they heard a bomb go off. And it was not long after that they heard the church meeting house next door began to be wrestled around with and begin to be burned on fire. After that, they heard a banging at their own gate next door. Comfort's father was a pastor. Her mother then took him at the noise of this, hides him in the back bedroom under some clothes. And as she hides him, she prays, God, we are in your hands. The militant Muslim group known as Boko Haram broke in, dragged Comfort's mother out, and began beating her, saying, quote, You Christians say God has a son. Call on that son. They then threatened her and told her that if they didn't find her husband, that they were going to execute her. She then responded by looking at them, saying, Even though I see your gun, I will not fear you. Moments later, they heard something in the back bedroom. They found her husband. They draw him out. They then proceeded to use their weapons on him. After doing this, they burned down the home, and then they left. As Comfort's mother held her dying husband in her lap, she prayed for him. And his dying words were, Amen, to her prayer. Now the question that Comfort Jesse and her family asked that day, and plenty other days after it, I'm sure, the question that we can ask so often amidst such extreme evil is, where is God? Where's his power? Where's his kingdom? Where's his justice? Well, today's passage, friends, will answer not only this injustice, but every injustice known to man, from the smallest to the greatest. And this passage will leave us in hope. It will leave us in the hope of glory. And if we're here this morning, maybe for the first time, we're in our second week of this kind of mini-series we're calling The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. We as a church have spent our last seven months in the book of Kings, where we have been oriented by an ethnic kingdom that was earthbound with walls and kings sitting upon thrones. And yet now in the kingdom of heaven, in the new covenant, when Christ has come, we now have a spiritual kingdom that is multi-ethnic and multinational. And so we in the new covenant, what we're trying to do in this series is orient ourselves to the kingdom of heaven that is now inaugurated, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that we are defining as the reign and rule of Christ. This morning, again, we'll do that from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 43 that you heard Anna read. Big idea this morning, three points. The kingdom of heaven grows, is just, and will shine. The kingdom of heaven grows, is just, and will shine. And you can look down there in the passage. You can see the structure of the passage pretty clearly coming off the parable of the four soils that we'll mention again in a minute. Uh, We have a new parable there in verses 24 to 29. You see that? That will then followed by two separate but related parables in verse 31 and 33, followed by the reminder that Jesus is regularly teaching in the crowds by parables in verse 34 to 35. And then you get an explanation to that parable in verses 36 to 43. 
Now, a parable, if you're wondering what a parable is, Jesus is often teaching in parables. Again, as you see there in verse 34 and 35, a parable is a story meant to teach a single lesson. That's what a, that's what a parable is. It's a story, simple story meant to teach a single lesson. And you got to be careful, guys, especially pastors, preachers, teachers, got to be really careful when you're interpreting parables because it's easy to get parables wrong. And the way that you get it wrong is by seeing numerous spiritual lessons drawn from your own personal insights. That's how you get it wrong. Numerous spiritual lessons drawn from your own insights. The way to do parables well, to interpret them well, is to discern the single intention of the author as drawn out by the passage of Scripture. Coming to conclusions based off the text. Single point based off the passage itself. So first off, we're seeing here this, the kingdom of heaven grows. The kingdom of heaven grows. Look at verse 24. Jesus is picking up on this theme of seeds and soils, which he just used in the parable of the soils to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. He just finished that off. Uh, It may be compared in verse 24. He starts on this parable and says it may be compared. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sows good seed in his field. But then he says an enemy comes in and sows weeds while this man that planted the good seed was sleeping. And so in the man's field, you have both wheat growing and now weeds beginning to grow. The servants of the master go out. They realize the problem. They tell the master at which time the master realizes that an enemy has come in and sowed those weeds in his own field. The servants ask if they should start pulling up the weeds and leave the wheat, at which time the master says in verse 30, Let both grow until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, here's what's significant in part right now. You'll notice right there, it cuts off. Jesus would have finished the parable at that point. I want you to imagine ourselves, this big sort of crowd, not a church crowd, but Jesus finishes the parable. He's done. He walks away. Or at least he moves into these other parables. Jesus at this point is speaking to crowds of people. If you look back to chapter 13, verse 2, that's the context. He's just speaking to big crowds. It's not like a church service. It's just a big crowd, as it were. He finishes the parable there, which is interesting, isn't it? Crowds gather. Jesus tells parables. And we read in verses 10 to 17 of this chapter. And we read in verse 34 that Jesus tells these parables because it's a way of drawing people in and seeing who is actually interested in the kingdom. He's telling parables so as a way to be a little bit unclear, so as to see who has eyes to see, who has ears to hear. Jesus, friends, doesn't do like a lot of attractional churches do today. He does the very opposite when the crowds are around. Instead of trying trying hard to do things that everybody will like, Jesus teaches hard things, in slightly unclear ways so as to draw people in and weed out the people that are just into him for entertainment or utility value. Jesus consciously is trying to weed people out and see who's going to be drawn in. That's why he's doing these parables. And so at the end of verse 30, we're left on edge. He tells the parable and then kind of is done with that parable at this point. But thankfully, friends, we are in the unique position in that we have the scriptures to help us see what the meaning of the parable is. But for now, Jesus moves on to two shorter parables relating to growth. The kingdom of heaven grows. Verse 31, the first is Jesus' comparison to the kingdom of heaven as being like a tiny mustard seed 
that grows to the size of a tree where birds are large enough, uh, where the trees is large enough for birds to rest on its branches. Not too hard to see the meaning of this parable. Something small grows to something big. There you go. Something small grows to something big, so big that birds can rest on it, right? The kingdom of heaven is something that will start small, but grow to be something that is big. And friends, isn't that exactly what we've seen over the last 2,000 years? When Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven, died, there were some 120 persons sitting fearful in a room. That was it, 120 out of all these crowds. It seemed to those there was only 120. And as Jesus even hung on the cross, his enemies mocked him and made fun of him, saying he could save others, but he can't save himself. He was thought to be a kind of failed experiment. All these crowds, now just a tiny little group, and even the king seems to be dying. Only until resurrection day, Christ raises from the dead. And even after that, we read that after the resurrection, we have the ascension when Jesus ascends to the heavenlies, sends down the Holy Spirit into his people. In Acts 1.8, his apostles are told uh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and they're told to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that is the progression that we read about in the book of Acts. It moves out. The kingdom is advancing as these people testify. And so now, some 2,000 years later, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven today are like a tree like a tree. What began small, the time of Christ, has grown over all the world. Small in the number of the citizens of the kingdom, that is. And on what did it advance? On what did it become, this tree, this numerous amounts of people? On what did it advance? Like Islam, did it advance in militaristic might? No. No, it grew by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through people testifying to the gospel. The kingdom of heaven was once a tiny mustard seed, and now it's a great tree. And friends, I've seen this personally. I'm sure many of you have as well. I've worshipped in other places. I've worshipped alongside brothers and sisters in Christ in churches in India and places like Iraq, in the Dominican Republic, in Haiti. Even in this church, we have a little over 150 members with some 20 different ethnic backgrounds from all four corners of the earth. And again, it all began like a tiny mustard seed. Just a handful of people gathering, trusting in Christ. The kingdom of heaven was once small, but it has grown into a mighty oak tree. Beloved, never forget that. Never forget that. When all of the news outlets predict the decline of Christianity, just remember this parable. The kingdom is an oak. And what God has begun, he will bring into completion. We read at the end of the book of the Bible, as it were, in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. We read about that great uh, gathering of the church, the one church that is all together. We read there, it says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Therefore, beloved, we need not measure the size of our churches to determine the growth of the kingdom of heaven. We need only point here to Jesus' own words that what began small has grown large. That is the kingdom of heaven. A tiny seed that's an oak, now an oak. Something small that has grown to something large and no one can stop its growth. So the kingdom of heaven grows in size by the number of its citizens born to God. 
The next parable in verse 33 represents the manner in which it grows to its size. The manner in which. So in verse 33, Jesus moves out of his use of seeds and he now moves into a parable regarding leaven for the kingdom and its growth. Leaven is an ingredient to make bread rise, right? If you see a loaf of bread, it's, it's risen because of the presence of leaven within the flour. And so try and imagine yourself sitting in front of making a, a loaf of bread, all right? Try and imagine that. In front of you, what you see is largely a bunch of flour. Look at all those ingredients. You wouldn't really see the leaven there in there. Take a look at the parable in verse 33. Notice that word hid. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Two key words in there. One hid in the flour till it was all leaven. So there's something hidden that moves into everything, into all of it. That's the big idea of that parable. Something that's hidden that becomes into all of it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It starts small and grows big, and the way that it does that is likened to leaven that is hidden until it takes up everything. And so the notion of hidden, I believe, being taught here is is how the gospel and its people will advance in a manner unlike the world. I think that's what he means by hidden and then moving out into all of it. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21, when he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul then goes on in the next verse to explain what he means by folly. It's folly that is by the world's definitions of power and success. Look at the very next verse, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so God will advance his kingdom in a hidden manner, meaning it will be seen as folly in the eyes of the world, foolishness in the eyes of the world. That's how it will be seen. So, for instance, in Jesus's day, The news, the nightly news would have been uh, centered around the might of Rome, the power of Rome, the glory of Rome. That would have been what we've been talking about. Had Fox News and CNN or Washington Post been covering the news, you'd probably not have had a single article about the growth of the kingdom of heaven. And yet it did advance largely out of sight from the might of Rome. Riding oftentimes on the back of the people that the world has little value for. The poor the marginalized, the weak, the ones whom the world has no need of, and yet God loves and is pleased to use. The kingdom grows in a manner hidden from the eyes of the world, but present in the eyes of God and in the eyes of his people until it fills up, like it says in the book of Revelation, every people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all over the earth. It grows large and it does so in a manner hidden in the eyes of the world and yet full all out into the world. And beloved, this is such a prescient parable for us in the modern American West. Right now, it seems like everything is going against the church, right? That's what we hear. Church membership is declining. Polls increasingly show that more and more people are rejecting historic Christianity. 
The culture is secularizing it. Culture is secularizing, calling it love to rejoice or accept what God calls evil and calling good what God calls evil, etc. Greed and sexual immorality and fits of anger, rivalries, drunkenness. These things are seen either as virtuous or as the good life today. In fact, if you even take the straightforward historic teaching of Christ on these things that I just mentioned, you will be said to be uh, of a bygone era that tradition is sort of, we've, we've gotten beyond, we've progressed beyond. And yet hidden out of sight of the power structures of the world, hidden out of the evaluations of the world, is the advance of the kingdom of God. Just as we're told here. And so we can assume, for instance, let's just assume for a moment that those in America, it's that those numbers are declining. Let's just assume that's true. That people are less and less believing the gospel, believing the Bible. Right? We can believe that might be true at the very same time. We can also believe that the kingdom of heaven is not vulnerable in any way. Both of those things we can maintain. Because as I, as I read here, it will grow and it will grow in a manner that is hidden from the eyes of the world until it eventually reach every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the application for us then, Restoration Church, is to know where to look and how to look. Right? You get that? We as the church have to know where to look and how to look. What the world sees as only flour, we can look at that flour and know there's leaven in it. What the world sees as its victory over the Bible says straightforward teaching on marriage, for instance. They can revel in that alleged victory just as Boko Haram reveled in the murder of that pastor. But all they see is what is in front of them. All they see is flour. They don't see the leaven. We know the rest of the story. We know the strength. We know the power of the kingdom. We have eyes to see. We know that nothing can stop the kingdom of heaven. Nothing can stop its numerical representation in the world. It marches on in a manner with which will be hidden from the eyes of the world. It will be folly in their eyes, yet pervasively filling up the world. Friends, I've said it numerous times from this pulpit. I believe that we are in the midst, many have said that we are in the midst of a revival today. Kingdom citizens are being born again in in places that we've never seen before, in ways we've never seen before, in places like Iran, in China, in Pakistan. People coming to faith in Christ in all kinds of numbers. And I would even go on to argue that we're in the midst of a kind of purging period in America, such that the church is actually being strengthened. But again, it's hidden from the eyes of the world because it doesn't meet their metrics of power and influence as the world defines. It's not being talked about in so many places. Therefore, while we may mourn for so much of our cultural moment, and much more, we mourn the cultural moments in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Libya. We mourn those. We mourn those knowing three things, that nothing can stop the growth of the kingdom. Secondly, that it will advance hidden from the power players of the earth their metrics. And third, we can know, we can look at these things knowing justice is coming in the end. That's the second thing we'll consider. The kingdom of heaven is full of justice. First, the kingdom of heaven grows mustard seed to tree. Then the kingdom of heaven grows hidden from the eyes, uh, the evaluations of the world. Now kingdom of heaven is full of justice. Take a look at verse 36 there. Matthew returns to the explanation of the parable about the wheat and the weeds. Y'all remember that one? He kind of told it and then kind of stopped it. He returns to it there in verse 36. And notice in verse 36, we are now away from the crowds. Look at verse 36. Really important to see this, guys. 
We are now away from the crowds, and he's now talking only to the disciples. That's a significant point. They, the disciples, asked Jesus to explain this parable between the weeds and the wheat. And he then, Jesus interprets them for us through the amazing blessing of Scripture, y'all. This is the beauty of Scripture. We get to be on the inner circle of Jesus to know what these things mean. Jesus interprets for them in verse 37 to 39. We see in verse 37 that the good seed is sown by the Son of Man. See that there? Jesus regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. So the first thing we learn about that parable is that Jesus is the sower of the good seed. That's the first thing we learn. Look at verse 38. The field that's planted in, he says, is the world. The field is the world. Which, by the way, remember he said it was his, so God owns it. He owns the world. The field is the world. This is important because some take passages related to the deception and the devil, and they apply it oftentimes only to the church. But clearly, Jesus knows the devil not only schemes against the church, but he is scheming against the world at large. Because it's out in the world. The field is the world. And we learn the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. By the way, notice that binary notion. That's how Jesus understood the world. There wasn't three kinds of people, four kinds of people, right? There's sheep and there's goats. There's a narrow gate and a broad gate. There's weeds, there's wheat. There's lost, there's found. So we learn the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. In verse 39, the enemy who sowed those those seeds of the, the wheat, sorry, the weeds, the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil. And then the reapers, we learn, they are the, or those servants, they are the angels, angels of God. Okay, we got a lot of help, don't we? Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, he sows the good seed. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom of heaven that are those that are repenting, believing, following Christ. The field in which Jesus is doing all this work is out in the world, all the world. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy, the devil, is the one that sowed them. The angels of God are the ones that are going to go out and harvest them. And that then leaves us the question, what about this harvest? What's this harvest all about? What's the point of this parable, as it were? Well, the harvest, look at verse 39. The harvest represents the end of the age. The end of the age. And age is being used here the same way that we would use the words bronze age or ice age or industrial age. In other words, it's meant to communicate the ending of a span of a particular way God's dealing with the world. It's an ending of a kind of period of time in which God was ending, was ruling with the world, dealing with the world. In other words, what Jesus seems to be straightforwardly teaching here, here is that there's going to be this delay between his going and his coming. There's going to be this time period to where you're going to have weeds and wheat growing alongside one another, living next to each other. There's going to be this time in which you're going to have sons of the kingdom living alongside of sons of the evil one. And it will end this period, this age, when these two are living alongside of one another. It's going to end when the periods of the weeds and the wheat live alongside. That'll come to an end when the angels, who are the master servants, God's servants, They will be sent out into the world to reap the harvest, to bring it in. In other words, in the fullness of time, this is the time that we are still waiting on. This is the last chapter. This is what we as Christians believe. One chapter left. Tons of chapters fulfilled. This is the final one. We're waiting for this harvest. In the fullness of time, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire at the end of the age. 
verse 41, the Son of Man, that's Christ, he will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, which remember the kingdom, remember is spread into all, like the leaven into all. He will gather out of his kingdom two things. So the angels go out into the world and they pull out the weeds, which are said to be two things. In verse 41, all causes, they pull out all the weeds, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Thought a lot about those two things this week. And what will they do? Angels go out into the world at the return of Christ when he sends his angels out. Weeds come up. They get thrown in the fire. What are those weeds? Two things. It's all causes of sin, all lawbreakers. And they are thrown into the fiery furnace, Jesus says. A place described, he says, oftentimes he uses this language. They will throw them into this fiery furnace, which is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping meaning deep sadness, a place of deep sadness. Gnashing of teeth meaning anger. The fiery furnace seems to indicate suffering. And so putting all of this together, we see that the Lord will send out his angels. They will gather all the weeds, that is all the unrighteous. They will gather out all causes of sin, which I understand to be the devil and his agents of deception. And he will gather out all those lawbreakers. That is, those that are not counted righteous in Christ. They are counted as lawbreakers. Since they don't have faith in Christ, therefore, they maintain their confession of being counted as unrighteous. They're lawbreakers. They will be gathered and thrown into a place of sadness, anger, and suffering. The devil and those not in Christ thrown into this place, otherwise known as hell. And friends, you can see this ending of the age, the sending out of uh, the angels in numerous places, taught oftentimes by Jesus himself. But one place you can see it so clearly is at the end of the Bible in Revelation 14, 19, where it says there, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. In other words, friends, final judgment. Now, just in case you think this can't describe a God who is said to be love, well, first I would tell you, this is being taught straightforwardly by Jesus, who is the captain of love. But secondly, I would remind you of Comfort Jessie and her family. Comfort and her mother and her family on that day and days after it were calling rightfully for justice to be done as does the blood of a million injustices throughout the world. Not only related to Christian persecution, but any matter of injustice, including any deceptions from the sons of the evil one that lead people to devote themselves to calling evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5 makes this so clear. Woe to those that call evil good and good evil. Friends, there is this longing on planet earth, isn't there? For justice. Everywhere, there's this longing for justice. It's easy to forget, I think, that the sons of evil are sowing deception and people are blindly devoting themselves to this deception and calling good evil and evil good. Jesus makes that so clear in this passage and so many other passages. People all over the world are being hurt by it all. And God will deal with it at the end of the age. He'll deal with it. We live in a world that longs for justice and it should long for justice because the God in whose image we were made is a God of justice. 
He defines the right and therefore he defines the wrong because he alone is holy. Therefore, he meets out justice perfectly, both now and in the end of the age. Psalm 33, 5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And so Jesus, in this parable, guys, wants his disciples to understand that the kingdom of heaven is full of justice. He wants them to understand that God knows it all. He sees it all and nothing and no one will go unpunished. In fact, if God doesn't do this, if he doesn't pluck out the weeds, if he doesn't harvest every unrighteous thought or deed and give it full justice, not only will evil triumph, but also the glory of the righteous will not shine as they were designed to do. Instead, they will go on. The world will go on with shades of gray, which is not right. And so it is the wisdom and the love of God that will administer a perfect justice at the end of the age. Therefore, this parable is told uh, to us in order to explain two very different things to two very different groups of people. First, it's told, this parable is told to the Christian hidden in Christ. That's clear in the context. It's told to the Christian, justice is coming. That's what he wants you to know. Justice is coming. And to the non-Christians, this passage is here. It's here for the unrepentant that is not hoping in the righteousness of Christ. It's maintaining that lawbreaker status. He also is telling you this parable so as to let you know justice is coming. To the one, it's great comfort. To the other, it's meant to be received with fear and trembling in order that they would repent and believe. Jesus, friends, does not mince his word about the realities of hell. He is clear regularly and often that it is terrible. If it wasn't, then God would not be good or loving. I can't help but wonder what would change in our own lives and those of others if we stopped ignoring hell, if we stopped trying to diminish hell, and we actually started leaving it with the weight with which Jesus talks about it. How would things change? And so I hand it out to us this morning as Jesus did. To the non-Christian, trusting in your own righteousness. Friend, you should know, justice is coming. It's clear that this explanation is primarily to Christians, but it is preserved in Scripture for you also, friend. That you would repent and believe. That you would know the joy of salvation. That you would know Christ's righteousness. That you wouldn't be counted as a lawbreaker. You need to be warned, friend, at the coming harvest. Be warned by the return of Christ where his angels will be sent out to the four corners of the earth, wherein each and every person you will be dealt with according to every all of your thought life and all of your deeds. What you said was good and what you said was evil. What you participated in, what you thought good and what you participated in and thought evil. It is not unseen by God. And friend, it is the infinite kindness of God that he brought you here this morning to hear this morning. Sweet gift from God to you this morning. So turn from the deception. Turn to the truth, which is Christ. He is the one that can set you free. And freedom, friend, is not the autonomous self with unlimited options and morality defined by each cultural moment. No, freedom is found in Christ. It's in Christ. He has come, as he said, to set us free from our own enslavement to our own desires and our own inconsistencies and our own deception so that he might 
then help us to see and savor the truth and live in light of it and enjoy it forever. It's why Jesus has come. Jesus' desires are for righteousness, for goodness, for holiness, for eternal life. He's the one that knows what it means to live since he's the one that made us and sustains us. And so if you're wondering, all right, am, where, am I in that category? If you're here this morning going, okay, I'm not real sure. Am I a weed or a wheat? Well, let me give you a little bit of help. Jesus actually makes this much clearer in the parable right before ours. In verses 18 to 23, he shows you which ones are the weeds and the wheat. He has four different kinds of soils, the first three of which would indicate the weeds. That's the context for the parable in which we come to. So I'll just briefly look at those. You can go back and study those this afternoon. Jesus says in verse 19, there are those who hear the word and don't understand it. That would be a first kind of weed. That doesn't mean, Jesus doesn't mean there that like you're not smart enough to figure it out. That's not what he means by not understand it. What he means there is there are, these are the people that hear the word of God and they don't endeavor to understand it. They don't care. They're not interested in it. They're disinterested in the full orb truth of Christ and they just go on rejecting it. That's the first way in which you would know that you are a weed. The second way, the second soil that Jesus describes in verse 20 to 21 are those who claim to receive the gospel. They say that they're Christians, but as time goes on, when either suffering comes and you reject him or difficulty, listen to this, as a result of following the teaching of Christ, when that comes and you walk away from him. Either suffering comes and you're like, I'm done with God, or some teaching of Jesus comes and you're like, I'm done with that. Jesus would say that's how you know you're a weed. Third soil, probably the most common to our context, in verse 22. These are people who claim to say they're in the truth of Christ. They claim they've received the gospel, but then the allure of money and houses and cars and travel and relationships and friends and lifestyles, what Jesus calls the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. He says they choke the beauty and the life of the word. They're weeds harvested, thrown into the fire because they've rejected the righteousness of Christ and the life in him that he offers through that word. Again, counted as weeds, they're subject to the deceptions of the sons of the evil one and they suffer their fate. But friend, today is the day of salvation. You can be rescued from that fire by repenting of sin, by seeing the truth in Christ, by seeing your own sin. And running to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness. Friend, you have this amazing thing that has happened to you this morning. You have been brought into the circle of the disciples away from the crowds. And Jesus has explained to you the truth. So that you would repent and believe and escape this coming judgment. And be counted righteous, not a lawbreaker. It's an amazing thing. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ as the way and the truth and the life. He's the one that defines the good, the right, and the true. Jesus has satisfied the penalty for sin at the cross. Trust in Jesus' payment for your sin at the cross. Trust that he's overcome it in the resurrection. And you'll be counted righteous. And your sins will be dealt with there 2,000 years ago. Otherwise, friend, you're left to pay for it yourself. At that harvest. And for those that have received the gospel, those that are those disciples, those that are that fourth soil that Jesus talked about, those of you that are the wheat, 
Those, that is, or those who are repenting and believing. Those who are bearing fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold, as the parable says. Jesus says there, for those suffering and enduring tribulation on account of the word, trusting in Jesus. Beloved, listen, justice is coming. Know that justice is coming. What we have had to endure in our context is so pale in comparison to most Christians in the last 2,000 years, including those in our own day, like Comfort Jesse. And so for them, imagine those people that have suffered so much as a result of their following Christ or just living in the world. Imagine those Christians. No doubt this parable offers them tremendous hope, doesn't it? Tremendous hope, which is why I think Jesus is primarily preserving this for us, to provide an answer for those times when they've dealt with something, they've been dealt with horribly for one reason or another, small to great, and the enemy seems to have won. Jesus wants you to see those weeds, they get harvested and they get dealt with. In the kingdom of heaven, justice will prevail over every single injustice. No doubt, I'm sure, Comfort Jesse and her family would have taken great comfort, do take great comfort in the fact that the days following their death of their father and what had happened to them, they are going to be able to rest easy to know that those men, they will be dealt with. Either at the cross of Christ when they give their life to Jesus or in the end of the age. They could sleep peacefully at night knowing that they would not escape justice. But also all the other evils sown into the field of the world. Field of the earth. No, beloved, an hour is coming when Christ will send out his angels to reap the harvest and pull up every weed of evil and throw it into the fire. Your unjust suffering, friend, or that of others, it will not have the last word. Christ will. Christ will. And then when it's plucked out, all of that evil done to you, or maybe your own evil that has been dealt with at the cross, when it is all eventually out, the devil and his minions and all, when it is all plucked out, then you will shine. Then we will shine. Then the kingdom of heaven will glow. That's where we'll finish. Third point, the kingdom of heaven will shine. Look at verse 43 and notice that first word there in verse 43. Actually, it's not the first word. Look in verse 43. It is the first word, then. Then, that is, after the causes of sin, Satan and his servants, and the lawbreakers, those opposed to the beauty, the rule, the authority of Christ, after they are all plucked up out of the field of the world, there is left this beautiful harvest of wheat. And I don't know if you've ever seen a harvest field dancing in the gentle breeze, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's not only beautiful because of what it appears, this grains of wheat just blowing back and forth, but it's also beautiful because of what it does, provide food for the hungry. It glows, it shines. This is the consummated kingdom of heaven. This is what lies before us as Christians who have been made righteous, not by our own good deeds, not by our own intelligence, but by the righteousness of Christ dealt with us and given to us at the cross. This is what lies before us by grace through faith in Jesus. With the causes of sin and lawbreakers put outside the kingdom, we also know that whatever struggles with sin we have in our own self, think about that. All those struggles that I have, that you have, Christian, all of that gone. No more struggle with sin. Oh, hasten the day. Our own lawbreaking will be fully and finally dealt with. It's been dealt with first in the cross, but even experientially after it's gone, all lawbreaking 
out of the world, pulled any weeds left in our own hearts, any weeds in the world pulled out. And so with the absence of all sin and death and the causes of sin and death done away, justice served, what is left with is a kingdom of unfathomable glory. A glory so bright and beautiful, so safe and alluring that it is to be dreamed about every single Sunday here and every weekday in our lives. Dreamed about that kingdom of glory. The hope of heaven, church family, is meant to be an anchor for our lives. It's meant to be a kind of whisper in our ears as we wade through the mud and the muck of the world. How much are you thinking about heaven? That's why this is here. To pull you along. Through all the doubt, the disappointment, and the fears that we all live in, the hope of heaven, the consummated kingdom of heaven, wherein we will shine, this is here to help kind of whisper through us throughout the day. Keep going. Keep going. Glory's coming. You're going to rest soon enough. Keep going. It's what it's there for. So often, you guys know, I studied this five years ago. 5% of New Testament verses. 5%. That's more than marriage and all kinds of other things combined, regularly anchoring our hope in heaven. The consummated kingdom of heaven so frequently talked about in scripture and so often neglected in our pulpits and even in our own daily meditations, that hope of heaven is meant to be like honey to a bee. It's meant to be like a Mount Summit to the hiker. This kingdom shining out in front of us where it's full of justice is meant to be this kind of first cup of ice water on a hot summer day when you sit on the porch of the house that you've been laboring to build for the past year. That's what it's supposed to be like. The kingdom of heaven, the hope of the consummated kingdom of heaven is meant to be like that person, that woman that maybe holds her child after being childless for so many years. Or standing on a podium listening to your country's national anthem after you have overcome injuries and defeats for year after year. That's what it's supposed to do for you. Heaven is the saint's everlasting rest. And it's in front of us. Alluring us, compelling us on to keep following Jesus. It's our native land. We we sojourn here through the darkness because we know light is just ahead. And when we get there, when we cross over the river of death, or Christ returns and ushers in the final age, beloved, we will shine. We will shine, not because of any inherent glory of our own. No, no. But like Moses' face that reflected the effulgent glory of God, we will shine because we will be in Emmanuel's land and we will see him face to face and so reflect his glory out onto the rest of his new creation. It's his glory that will shine. We will shine because we will be shined upon by our beloved King and Savior, Christ the Lord. It's his glory reflected in us and our collective lives together in that consummated kingdom where we will shine to the world. No sin, no death, no evil, all good. All the gone taken away, all the good amped up. That's what's in front of us. One author has written that the light of heaven is the face of Jesus. The joy of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The melody of heaven is the name of Jesus. The theme of heaven is the work of Jesus. The employment of heaven is the service of Jesus. The fullness of heaven is Jesus himself. The duration of heaven is the eternity of Jesus. Beloved, we will shine because we will eternally gaze upon him who, as we saw at the Mount of Transfiguration, emanates light from himself. We will, that glory will shine off of us and onto everything else in creation. 
and it will glow forever. We will shine because of him. His glory will so emanate in us that we will never hunger again in that kingdom, consummated kingdom. That kingdom has begun and it will be consummated at the end of the age. And in that kingdom, as we reflect the glory of Christ, we will never hunger, nor will anyone else. Never thirst. We will never lose heart. We will never lose heart. We will never doubt in that kingdom. We will never suffer in that consummated kingdom. We will never be disappointed. We will never struggle with sin. We will never be sinned against. We will never be lonely. Never again will we wonder if it's worth it to follow Jesus. In fact, on that day in the consummated kingdom of heaven, when we are shining and all the evil is gone, on that day, the light of glory and the face of Christ shining so brightly and beautifully, the only regret we will have, if it's even possible to have a regret, is that we didn't give more of ourselves to Christ and his people and his kingdom and his world. And therefore, beloved Restoration Church family, as we sit here in the field of the world, weeds all around us, weeds even sometimes in our own hearts, the evil one and his minions causing sin to invade the world through deception, lawbreakers tempting us, threatening us, dragging us down, Again, we even have to pluck those own weeds out of our own heart as creation groans with so many weeds now in the garden. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is growing. The kingdom of heaven is full of justice and it will finally come. And third, beloved, know the kingdom of heaven will shine. You will shine. I will shine. We will shine because we will reflect the amazing glory of Christ. And so the call for us then amidst this time with so much weeds around and within is to reflect, to meditate on the excellencies of Christ, to see in him true glory. Don't trade the glory of man for the glory of God. Trade in the passion of Christ. See glory in him. And while his kingdom has begun, here it is. It is not yet complete. But one day it will be. And Jesus will send out his angels. He will gather all the weeds from the world, the weeds from the world, and he will then allow the wheat to shine. That's the day that we wait upon. Never forget it, beloved. And let those days and those realities orient us now in our life together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you teach us through your word. You tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. You assure us that the kingdom started small and it has grown large. And it has grown in a way that is so often hidden from the eyes of the world and yet advancing to all four corners of it. You tell us, Jesus, that it's full of justice, that every wrongdoing will be dealt with, either on the cross or in the harvest. And you tell us that as a result of that justice, that full and final justice that comes at the, time, at the return of Christ, you tell us that we're going to shine. There will be no need of sun nor moon because the glory of Christ will shine so bright. That's our fate. Oh God, help us to consider the horrors of hell and the beauties of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. And may we give ourselves to that kingdom and not be swayed by any darkness here on the earth. 
And I pray, God, for those that are here that are wrestling with these realities. Turn them, God, we pray, supernaturally from weeds into wheat. You can do it. We pray that you would. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.